Well, tonight what I want to do is sort of do a summary of the book of 1 Samuel, and really mainly just a summary of one particular theme, and it's the theme of authority. Remember I said at the beginning of the book that a big question of the book is what kind of leader will the people of God have? What kind of leaders will the people of God have? And if I could just back up and say, well, some of you might think, well, I'm not a leader, so this doesn't apply to me. Actually, it applies to all of us. God created us to bear authority. God, in his authority, likes to share his authority. He made Adam and Eve, and he shared his authority over creation with them. He wanted them to share his reign and his rule and to share it with him. And so every single one of us were created to bear authority. And one way to think about this life is as preparation to bear the authority that God will give us for eternity. Probably all the things that we have authority in in this life you can think of as just training for that bearing of authority in eternity. And just in case you're thinking, well, I'm a child, I don't have authority. Actually, you do. Your authority is not as much as your parents. But if you're a child, you have authority over your thoughts. Don't you? Your parents can't get inside your head and and determine what you think. Your parents would like to have authority over your room, but you have authority over your room. Uh, What you do with your room and your property is up to you. So there's all kinds of ways we have authority. If you're a teacher, you have authority. If you're a parent, you have authority. If you have a skill, you have authority. So God made us for authority. He gives us all some kind of authority, and he intends, as we grow in likeness to his son, to further extend our authority, to give us more and more. But his heart is that we would bear it more and more like his son. And so, again, one of the large themes of Samuel is what kind of leader will the people of God have? The book opens with failed leadership, the failed leadership of Eli, which leads to the downfall of his house. So it opens with a warning, but then it ushers in the authority of Samuel. So it opens up this pattern that we see really again and again through Scripture. There's a bad authority, and then there's a good authority. And it's almost as if this is God's way of teaching. Here's what it's like to have bad authority, and let me tell you something. It's bad. And he wants his people to know it from experience. But then he sends a good authority. So bad leaders first, then good. We could say the the mega theme of all of Scripture is the the first Adam and what he did with his authority and all of the terrible consequences of it. And the new Adam and what he did with his authority. Adam grasped. He was impatient. And when God confronted him, he made excuses and blamed it on everyone but himself. Jesus laid down his authority. He became a servant. On our behalf, he took our guilt instead of passing the buck. He took our guilt on himself and God raised him up to the highest place. So this theme of Adam, new Adam, bad leader, good leader goes all through scripture. We had Eli and then Samuel. And then in the book of first Samuel and really the whole book of first and second Samuel, we have Saul and David. We get David as a picture of what a good leader is meant to be. It's a painful process. But again, I think it's God's way of teaching his people. So what kind of authority will his people have? That's, that's, the, that's the question I want to look at tonight. And part of what I, the reason I want to look at this tonight is because we are going to ordain Kelly as an elder. Um, we want to ordain all kinds of people. 
And so just this theme in general is on my heart. So I kind of want to look at the theme of authority in Samuel because that's going on. So if I could back up, I want to suggest that there's three realms of authority that we can look at in Scripture. We can see it all the way back to the beginning in Genesis in Adam in relationship with God. In Adam in the garden, excuse me, in the field or as it were working. And then Adam or the people of God in relationship to those who are outside the garden. Let me say that again. We have relationship with God. This is worship. Adam was called to this relationship of trust and worship in the garden. But then outside of the garden, Adam was called to work. And much of what goes on here has to do with the way Adam and his children and his descendants related to one another. And then finally, God wants us to relate to outsiders, hopefully to bring them in. So let me explain what I mean by just quickly explaining how this went for Adam. What did Adam do in the garden? God gave him everything he needed and said, I want you to learn to rule with me. I need you to trust me. And there's one thing I don't want you to do. And of course, Adam grasped for what was forbidden. He grasped after the fruit that God wanted to share with him. But he wanted Adam to be patient. And when Adam was confronted, he shifted the blame. He shifted the blame to the one who was in authority over him. That's the first sign of a bad leader, Eve. He shifted it to God, even worse. Right? Uh, he didn't really own what he had done. So that was Adam's sin in relationship to God in the garden. What about the field? Well, what, where was Cain and Abel's little encounter? You'll remember that Cain and Abel brought sacrifices. They brought worship and Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not. And Cain resented it. He was envious. And ultimately he rose up and killed Abel. This was in the field. And it shows us that in relationship to his family, in relationship to his brethren, in relationship to work, uh, he was separate from God. And this was not without God pleading with him, saying, Cain, I see where you're headed. You don't have to go down this road. Finally, as we progress through Genesis, remember it says in a sort of mysterious passage, the sons of God went into the daughters of men. I want to suggest that what this was is in relation to the world, in relation to outsiders, in relation to people who were not walking in relationship with God. These people married, they intermarried, they mixed in an inappropriate way with those on the outside. Does that make sense? I want to explain that threefold pattern because I, I think we see it in Saul's life. I think we see Saul failing in those three areas. And I think we see David succeeding in those three areas. And so they're very informative about how we should understand authority. So let's go back to Saul and the garden. What was Saul told? Saul was told, listen, after you're victorious, after you're anointed. Well, let me read. This is in 1 Samuel 13, 8. He waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the offering, offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, notice, when I saw the people were scattering from him. Those are who's under authority. He's blaming them. When I saw the people were uh, scattering from me and that you did not come blaming Samuel within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, 
I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the, Lord, the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. So he said, listen, I've sent you to rule. I've sent you to deliver my people. And he succeeded in delivering his people. And then he said, just go down to Gilgal and wait for me. I am going to offer up the sacrifice. And he did not wait. He grasped after, after the sacrifice. And God says very specifically, I was going to give you the kingdom. I was going to establish the kingdom. I wanted you to trust me and be patient. So Saul's sin in the garden in relation to God and in worship with God was impatience. It was not trusting God. And as a consequence, he did not get the kingdom that God intended for him. What about the next one in the field or in relation to work in family and relationships? This is from 1 Samuel 14, 16. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah, so just for background, this is when Jonathan uh, went on the offensive and was routing the Philistines, and Samuel is getting word of this. And I want you to get a feel for the tone of this scene. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who's gone out from us. He doesn't know where all his people are. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul sent Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. Now, I think there's a bad hint here. Remember the last time they brought the ark out in battle? This was at the Battle of Aphek. It seems like he's treating the ark again like a magic box. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. He was in the process of consulting God, and the crowd was getting crazy, and he just said, stop it. He interrupted consulting God. He didn't go through with the consultation. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle, and, every, and behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Now I'm going down to verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Alvin. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, curse it. Now, I don't know, a leader laying a curse on his people. He lays a curse on his people. He says, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. And I am avenged on my enemies. Saul's leadership had become about him. The scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But Saul's leadership had become an ego trip. It had become a part of him and his reputation. So none of the people tasted food, had tasted food. Not, uh, so no, or, so, sorry, none of the people had tasted food. So he, he, he extends this oath. And of course, we know how the story unfolds. He almost kills his son. Who is acting like he should have acted. And the people rightfully stand in his way and said, no way, that's a foolish oath. And you are not going to kill your son who has wrought salvation in Israel this day. Jonathan is doing precisely what he should have. And Saul is driving his people. 
And he has made his leadership about his ego. And he interrupts the consultation with God. And he makes a stupid vow. So in relation to family, in relation to siblings, as it were, he fails. Finally, the last category, outsiders. That's in 1 Samuel 15, 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So God commands him to carry out the ban on Amalek. And specifically the point of the ban or part of the point of the ban was all of it belonged to God. Now in the ancient world when you went to battle, when you went to fight, you went for the spoils of war. That's why every pagan nation went to war. They went for the spoils of war. The ban specifically says you can't have any of it. It's not for you. Verse 9. This is when Saul is confronted by Samuel. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which you sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. There he goes again. It says specifically that he and the people took the spoil. But once again, he's blaming the people. Sheep and oxen, the best things and devoted them to uh, uh, the best things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Notice Saul seems to be trying to flatter Samuel and he doesn't really acknowledge God as his God. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul was in relation to Amalek to be like this. He was not supposed to cozy up to them. But it seems like that's precisely what he's doing. He's becoming a king like the nations. And here's a king like the nations. And he's like, oh, why should he die? Let me, let me invite him to my table. He's cozying up to the world rather than being having this boundary with the world. And he's taking what belongs to God for his use and calling it faith, calling it obedience. And finally, he blames the people. So these are the three areas where Saul sins and where he fails. And very briefly, let me point out some ways in which David reverses all that. What about the garden and worship and relationship with God? Well, I would say this. David was promised the kingdom, but he had to wait. He was anointed to be the king of Israel, but he had to wait before it came to him. He had to wait a long time. And he did. He waited. He did not grasp to seize the kingdom. He trusted God like Adam didn't, like Saul didn't. He said, God has promised this to me. God is good. I am going to wait for the promise that God has given to me. He refused on multiple occasions when he could have seized the kingdom. How many times in history would those circumstances yield that outcome? 
when David could kill the very man who was trying to kill him and in one fell swoop take the kingdom. But he didn't. He did not presume. He was not impatient. He trusted God. What about, uh, what about in relationship to um, the field or in relationship to the brethren? Well, there's all kinds of ways in which David blessed the people of God and blessed, as it were, his siblings and the people of God. He went out and fought uh, to deliver them. Uh, he saved Israel and he blessed Saul. Right? He brought blessings to Saul, both in the form of serving him um, as his music therapist and also in fighting the battles of the people. He entered into covenant friendship with Jonathan, and that was a blessing to Jonathan. He was loved by all. He was loved by the people. Initially, he was loved by Saul. He was loved by Michael. He didn't strike back when his father, as it were, Saul, tried to kill him, but he ran away. He gathered to himself the meek and lowly of Israel. Remember, it says that he was at the cave of Adullam and all those who were in distress and who were bitter in spirit and who were in debt gathered to him. That sounds an awful lot like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? It sounds an awful lot like the meek who will inherit the earth and those who are uh, poor in spirit. He shared the spoils of war with the weak and tired. Unlike Saul, who drove the people to exhaustion and almost killed his son, he never did that. And he never finally stopped trying to reconcile with Saul. He never attempted, or he never stopped trying to do that. Finally, in relation to the world, in relation to those outside the people of God, he was found blameless in service to Achish, the Philistine. He was in his court, and Achish says he is blameless three times. He remained faithful to God and didn't cozy up to the world, even though he was in the service of a pagan king. Right? He was out there in the among the nations, but did not succumb to their faith and did not succumb to, as it were, worldliness among them. He rescued an enslaved Egyptian and let him follow him. And he struck Amalek. He went out against Amalek and struck Amalek. So there's something about David where he understood that there's, there's this boundary between the people of God and those who don't know God, but also a provisional welcome to those who would repent. Does that make sense? He was, a, he was, as Jesus said, in the world, but not of it. He was in the world, but he wasn't interested in it in terms of trying to adapt its culture and be a part of them. But he was interested in the boundary being open to welcome those who were repentant. In it, but not of it, to rescue those who were of it. This is going to be a very important characteristic of David's reign, and I would encourage you to pay attention to this theme. David has a lot of Gentiles in his court. And I believe that's because David was an evangelist. I believe it's because people saw the faith of David and attached themselves to David. Because in relation to the world, he was in it and not of it. Let me mention two more things about Saul before I wrap it up and draw some concluding thoughts. The first is this. Remember in Deuteronomy 17 that it says that the king should write out a copy of the law. And he should study it and read it in all the days of his life. David in his life reflects a deep familiarity with and love for God's law. Consider the, the first psalm that opens the whole book of psalms. It speaks of the blessed man who delights in God's word 
day and night. And then the second chapter speaks of God's king. That happens a lot in the Psalms. The Psalm about God's king goes hand in hand with the Psalm about the love of scripture. And I think that comes from David. He was a man who obeyed what it said in Deuteronomy and loved the word of God. And therefore it informed his reign when David was at his best. In fact, I would say the scripture says this, the more authority you have, the more accountable you should be to God's word. The more authority you were given, the more familiar you should become with God's word. One final thing about David. David suffered before entering into his glory. David experienced a time not only of waiting, but a time of suffering before entering into his glory. And I think that made all the difference. Saul goes right into his his kingdom. He almost immediately takes up reign, but David spent years suffering. He knows what it's like to be cast out, to be misunderstood, to be wrongfully accused, to be exposed to danger, to be mistreated, to face hardship and Intimate familiarity with all of that shaped his authority. Think about it. If you know what it's like to be wrongly accused and you have authority, you're far less likely to be guilty of that yourself, of wrongly accusing someone else. All of his suffering prepared him to wield authority. In fact, in Psalm 119, the psalmist there says, It was good that I suffered, that I might learn to fear you. Just as Israel knew the deprivations of slavery in Egypt, and God used that to shape the kind of kingdom, the kind of culture they would build. He said repeatedly to them, actually, one of the most repeated commands to Israel in the Old Testament is love the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. Well, I think he says to David, reign wisely and well and mercifully because you know what it's like to be under bad authority at whose hands you suffer. It shaped David's reign. So these are the ways in which David reverses all of the abuse of authority that we see in Saul. And of course, David is one of the most important pointers to Jesus in all of Scripture. Of course, David will fall in multiple ways. And we have hints of that already. Have you noticed the hints already? In Deuteronomy 17, it says that the king that you appoint should not have many wives. Have you noticed David has picked up a few wives? All right, so there's a few clues that David is not perfect and that David is going to have some downfall. But you know what? I want to suggest that that should actually be an encouragement to us. You can have a leader that fails and he fails so badly and fails to repent that he loses it all. But you can also have a leader that fails pretty badly and he repents. It's not that he doesn't suffer consequences for the repentance, but... Um, you can have a leader that recovers from that. Does that make sense? I think that should be an encouragement to us. We too can repent if we don't carry out authority like we should. In fact, someone with authority should be used to apologizing. Used to quickly acknowledging when they fail. And of course, that's one of David's hallmarks is that he repented when confronted. And he faced the consequences head on of whatever the sin was that he committed. But of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And he is the supreme authority that fulfills all of these things in the garden, in the field, and in the world. He trusts his father waiting for his will alone. Trusts his whole life to the father. 
knowing that his life in the world that is a life of exile, as it were, from God, is going to come to an end. He lays down his life for his brethren. And not unlike bad leaders, he doesn't blame them, but he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He takes their guilt upon himself. And he loves the outsider. He loves the people on the margins. He's never tempted with their culture. But he's always going to the margins to try to invite them into his father's house. To try to call them to repentance. So it's good news that there's forgiveness for those who don't wield authority like Jesus does. But I want to also suggest that there's grace. There's grace so that we can be strong in grace so that we can learn to bear authority like God wants us to. Does that make sense? We're not stuck. We don't have to be stuck in a cycle of always abusing authority. Paul can say, he can say quite clearly, imitate me. And I think we would all be embarrassed to say that. But Paul says it unabashedly. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul can say, I have laid hold of the grace of God. And I have let his cross shape me. And I have let trust and obedience to him shape me. And I have let love for the brethren shape me. And therefore, I can say that there's some measure in which I'm imitating Christ. And you should imitate me in the same way. In Jeremiah chapter 3, God told his people, he promised through Jeremiah that he would give his people shepherds after God's own heart. I hope that's that's a familiar phrase to you. Shepherds like David. Shepherds who wait and are patient. Shepherds who love the people of God and are gentle with the people of God. Shepherds who are in the world but not of it. Jeremiah said that those shepherds would feed his people with knowledge and understanding. So I want to ask everybody to aspire by the grace of God to be the kind of person who bears authority the way Jesus does. Over whatever it is that you have authority for. I want to ask everybody to pray for more and more leaders in, 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 in response to his promise. Pray, God, give us shepherds after your own heart that feed your people with knowledge and understanding. And I want to encourage everybody in this room to aspire to authority. Maybe through suffering, maybe through patience. But I want to encourage you to aspire for what God intends for you to have. In his time, patiently, and in his way, and in in being conformed to his image. Amen? And finally, I want to say, imitate those who are imitating Jesus around you that you see. And in some sense, that is what we're doing when we ordain somebody. We're saying this person is imitating Jesus in such a way that we can say, imitate this person's life. In the book of Philippians, that's precisely what Paul does with Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself. And that's what we're saying in a couple of weeks when we ordain Kelly. But it's what we're saying when we ordain anyone. So may the, the intention of God for all of us to share his reign be fulfilled in us. May God plant a desire for that in his heart. And may he put in us a trust that cooperates with the way that he is preparing us for that reign. Through patience, through suffering, through loving service to others. Amen? Amen. We're going to come to the table, so let's pray.